Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative, we get into part two of Andy Dixon's amazing story about serving a life sentence, and we discuss all the lessons he's learned and the insights he's gained from both his time inside prison and his time outside. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I want to go back to the very beginning of this story uh, and really kind of dig into your childhood a bit. Uh, and, and sort of the very first question uh, for me is sort of around, you know, the loss of a mother and how that impacts your life. I think it's it's almost ironic that we're recording this on Mother's Day of all days. Uh, yeah. And sort of how that shaped and influenced you growing up uh, and, and how you think that impacted you. Well, you know, it's hard to say. I, I know that, uh, it, you know, being young, uh, I'd like to say it kind of helps, you know, when they're, when you're young and it happens to you, but you know, I was still old enough to always remember things like her laughter, her scent, you know, uh, she always smelled like, uh, uh, like soap. <laughs> she, you know, she, her hair and her just, you know, her hugs were, she, I could remember the s- smell of soap and she used dove <laughs> and, um, so I've always liked the smell of dove. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, and like I said, her laughter, she was always laughing and very happy. And sometimes, you know, that Italian blood in her would boil up and she could get pretty, pretty hot, you know. But uh, that was usually safe for my father <laughs> when, he, when he did something crazy. But, um, yeah, when she was gone, it was like, uh, I don't know. Was, uh, I, I felt different, you know, because other people had mothers, you know, and here I am with a grandmother, but it's just not the same, you know. And I remember uh, one of the reasons I, I didn't like going to uh, church was because they always had these big Mother's Day events, you know, and I would be like the only young guy around that had to wear like a, a a white flower, which meant my mother was dead. You know, you wore red for, you know, if your mom was alive, you wore white when she was passed on. And 
that I don't know if you're familiar with that custom, but it was really, really crazy, you know? And, and I would remember at those times, you know, the lack of having my mom around, but, uh, as far as influencing me to, you know, one way or the other, uh, you know, I'm sure that had she lived life, probably would have been a little different, but I'm not so sure it would have been much different because, you know, she would have basically done like all the women before her in our family and just, you know, done what the men say, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way it was. Uh, The men would, uh, the men were the men and the women were the women, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, that actually makes a, a perfect sort of setup for my next question, which is sort of the cultural influences of the time that you grew up in. I mean, the 50s and 60s, you referenced, you know, in the earlier part of our, our conversation. And I'm very curious always about how somebody's cultural influences kind of shape, you know, the, the way they see the world. Well, my cultural influences were from my mother's side was... Uh, uh, Sicilian, you know, my father met my mother when he was in the air force, uh, during, uh, the Korean war and she came to America. And, uh, when, uh, everybody got here, uh, I got born in 1951. So, uh, that's how I came into the world mm-hmm. at, uh, right outside of Anderson air force base out there in, uh, uh, South Carolina was where my father was stationed, and uh, they came up to Chicago for some reason. I'm not quite sure. There was a reason for it, and I was uh, brought into the world at uh, Cook County Hospital. So that's where I entered in at. Mm-hmm. That's where, where I came down. And so from cultural-wise, uh, my, my mother already had a brother that was over here in America and, uh, he was, uh, knee deep involved in crime. And, uh, so culturally I had my uncle, my mother's brother who was already over here. Then I had my father who was already involved in stuff with his father, who was, a an Irishman and, uh, a, uh, uh, Hellraiser and um, uh, a crook. You know, they were all crooks. And uh, also part of our Irish family was also mixed in. There were some hillbillies. So we had this southern Irish-Italian mix. You know, it's just crazy bloodlines, I guess you could say. <laughs> wow. You know, it, I guess one of the the other things that you said earlier uh, that really stood out to me was that you said that you know your grandmother was the first person uh, to ever give you sort of a vision of possibility of a life that wasn't this. Right, and you know, this is a question I think that anybody listening probably has had this sense of a vision of possibility at a very, very early age. And it's almost kind of like, you know, I had Joe Loya here, uh, who I'd, I'd mentioned to you earlier, who had you know been a bank robber. And he had talked about loss of faith. And I really regretted not asking him about that. But I get this sense that 
there's, you know, the vision of possibility and yet somehow it doesn't materialize till way later. And I'm curious about why, like why it takes so long. Why did you lose the vision of possibility? And for somebody who feels that they want to gain it back, how do they do it? Okay. Uh, My grandmother gave me those visions when I would visit her in in Tennessee. And she would take me to the side and she would tell me, she would say, I know that from your father and your uncles, there is a strong draw to follow them and do what they do. And I know that what they do seems very exciting, but there is a very hard price that you have to pay for that life. And I just want you to always try to remember that deep down inside you're a good boy and that no matter how far down you go, you can always get back up. And she held my face between her hands, one hand on each cheek of my face and looked at me dead in my eyes. And she says, you are a good boy. You have a beautiful soul. Don't let them destroy that. And so when I made my change in prison, one of the things I realized was, you know, I have to tell my family, you know, that I'm done with that, too. And I called my, you know, I told my father, I told my uncle who was still alive at the time, I said, you know, I've made a change. And I'm when I do get out, I'm not coming back to that life. I'm I'm just not going to do it. And I don't need any money or anything because see money that you get from my family always had strings to it even if they said there were no strings there was always strings you know there was always this sense of you owe me you know and uh i had to get rid of all that i had to get rid of this feeling of uh warped sense of love you know you know if i gotta hurt somebody for you to love me then you know that's not love i had to to remember that but uh, as far as somebody finding that vision that's given to them you just have to come to a point in your life where you challenge yourself you know if you never challenge yourself then you're always going to be who you are but I, I don't know anybody that likes to be doing wrong things or bad things or things that hurt their soul I don't know anybody that likes that. I never enjoyed doing things that harm people. I didn't enjoy it. It was it was business. But just calling it business don't make it right either. That's just like a guy on death row who kills somebody calling it his job don't make it right, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, the same thing in, in being a crook, you know, calling it your job don't make it right. And so... You know, I would say to anybody who's caught in a, a vice of, uh, of uh, violence and anger that you don't have to live that way. You can choose to live another way, but you first have to change who you are. Mm-hmm. You really do. You have to change who you are, and you have to realize that you need to change who you are. You know, some people are so far down the rabbit hole, I don't know if they can ever get back, to be honest. The good news is is there's not a lot of people like that, but there are some people that are so wounded and 
fragmented that I don't think you can put them back together. You know, they get, it starts when they're young. You know, they get beat up and sexually abused and treated like an animal. And they're just, you know, they can't ever trust anybody. They're just, you know, they're totally mad. Hmm. They're, they're broken, defeated. Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, the other things that, it, excuse me, uh, one of the other things that I am really curious about is the relationship with your father. Uh, you know, what that was like growing up. I mean, you mentioned that he was in prison when you were at a very young age. Uh, you know, we've talked a bit about your mother, but I'm curious, you know, what that relationship was like and how that influenced you. All right. So my father, uh, like I said, he was my hero. He was a, you know, he was a tough guy and, uh, all my uncles, uh, all my family, you know, a bunch of tough guys. And, uh, one of my earliest memories of my father is, you know, him fighting guys and kicking them out of the clubs and, you know, running them off and, you know, stuff like that. So that's just kind of guy he was, uh, but these people, they, they all, you know, we all live by a code, you know, you, your friends are your friends and you do pretty much whatever you can for them and you kind of stick together, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you, you, you know, that that's how the economy was, you know, your economy worked because you all worked together, you know, for a common cause, which was to put money in your pocket. But I also realized that a lot of times that money went to people that didn't do nothing. You know, they, they were just like, you know, they, they were the, the top of the, the food chain. So you had to pay them a little bit just to operate in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like that. So you're really, I mean, you're like a real life version of Goodfellas almost. Um, I don't know about all that. I mean, you know, <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen these shows, you know, and I, you know, uh, I actually knew, uh, uh, Hill, you know, uh -huh. I, he, he passed away, but yeah, I, you know, I knew some of these guys, you know? Wow. So, you know, the, the, the thing that, uh, you know, other thing you said that really stood out, uh, to me was that at a very early age, you were imprinted with this connection uh, between violence and love. And that right. sort of has played itself out throughout your entire life. Um, and, you know, I, I think about imprints and how they impact us. I'm really curious uh, about how we overcome our imprints. And, you know, my, my business partner, Greg, likes to say, you know, your temporary circumstances don't have to become your permanent identity. And I look at a life like yours and I wonder you know, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I don't know how I would handle the situation. But the fact that you could be imprinted with something like that and still overcome such an imprint, I'm really curious about how we overcome, you know, our imprints that limit our lives. Well, based on your experience, on my experience, you, you overcome it because we're human. I mean, you know, there's there's certain things about being human that are, that are common to us all. And that is that within all of us is a, uh, a desire to, uh, uh, 
love and be loved. You know, that's just something that's in us. We, we want to be connected. We want to contribute. And sometimes that gets screwed up. And uh, uh, with me, it got screwed up when uh, uh, the idea of what love was got screwed up. So love got screwed up with me when it was about an action that had to be committed to receive the reaction that you gave the name of love to. So like if I smacked somebody down and all my friends and family congratulated me and hugged me, that felt good. Just like if a kid hit a baseball and got a home run and come in and uh, step down on home plate, his father would come out and hug him for, you know, making such a great play. You know, it, it's the same dynamic. I mean, uh, uh, a kid that uh, does good in school and brings home uh, straight A's, he gets the, you know, the love of the family. You know, if I went out and broke in a store somewhere and stole five or $600 and brought it home and put it on the table. That was like straight A's. Wow. You know, so now having come from that, how do you, how do you get to where I'm at today? Is that you grow up, you, you see how other people in the world live. I mean, that's like you take a, a person that's never left, uh, uh, I don't know, Greenville, uh, Tennessee, you know, a little small town in Tennessee, born there, never left. And then all of a sudden, when they're 50 years old, they get to leave Greenville and go to New York City and see all this, you know, multicultural uh, uh, setting. You know, they get to see what all these people are actually like instead of, you know, what they heard. So now all of a sudden they got to change their view, right? Because they, they you know, if you've never met a, uh, let's say you've never met a black person, and then all of a sudden you meet a black person and you find out, well, they're not so bad. Or if you never met a, a Mexican and you meet a Mexican, you go, oh, well, they're not so bad. Well, in my life, it was like, okay, you know, you meet these squares, they're not so bad. You know, you meet, you know, you just meet people and you find out that they're not so bad. They, they got their, they got their good points about them too, you know? And, uh, and I think that comes full circle because when people meet, would meet me back then, they would, their thought would be, well, you know, he's not so bad, you know? And, and then to them, I wasn't, you know? The only people I'd be bad to were the ones that I was, you know, going to steal from or something, you know, then that would be bad. But I never stole anything from anybody I knew. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we always stole from people we didn't know. You know, it's not, you know, you would never take anything from your friends or people in the neighborhood. You just didn't do it. You know, so, and, and in our sense, it was kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a, we were like a little country. Mm -hmm. You know, we had invade another country. That was okay. You know, we would invade them, take what they had, and that spoils the war. You know, and 
one of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, we, we kind of thought of ourselves as the country. And, uh, and the United States of America was another country. And the United States of America, they're, you know, they're the baddest kid on the block. So you kind of want to stay away from them. You know, if there's a bully in the neighborhood, you don't want to mess with him. So in our way of thinking, uh, 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 the government was a bully. You stayed away from them because if you, if you didn't, it'd squash you like a bug because they had more guns and they were meaner than you were. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of where we thought about it. So let me ask you this. You know, one of the things that you also mentioned was that you had uh, done a bit of time in the military. And what I you mentioned that and then you mentioned also when you would see these sort of square guys, you would think, you know, you don't know how lucky you have it. So two questions come for me for that. One is it, it seems like there was a handful of opportunities to course correct here to almost go the other way and not end up where you did. And I'm very curious, you know, what what is sort of going through your mind in those moments uh, when you could have course corrected? And also, you know, when you see those square guys, I don't, you know, these guys don't know how lucky they are. I mean, other than that, what else is going on there? I mean, what's the story you're telling yourself in those moments? Well, I, I, I guess I have to go back to the moment. Uh, I remember uh, we had been um, trying to think how to tell the story here. We, we had uh, had a job that we had done. And this guy had uh, had the goods, and he didn't show up. And um, I was waiting outside of his place, and I was going to take care of him for what he had done. And I wasn't particularly comfortable doing it, but uh, I knew it had to be done. And I stayed out there probably eight, nine hours waiting on him. And um, a lot of people walked by during that time. And I was like in a gangway near the building. And that's when I saw this young guy and his girlfriend walking by and holding hands. And just I just had this passing thought how great it would be to be like that, you know. But if you can see where I was at the moment, that wasn't going to happen. You know, I didn't have nobody like that in my life. I didn't even, and to be honest, I... I didn't even hardly date because I didn't want to bring a woman into my life. You know, I didn't want to have a, I'd already seen guys get married and the way they would cheat on their wives. And I just didn't want to be like that. I didn't, I didn't want to have a, a family raised in that kind of environment, which goes to the point that I didn't like what I was doing, but at the same time, I didn't see a way out. I mean, now looking back, you can go, oh, you could have done this. You could have done that. Well, maybe not. Yeah. You know, maybe not. Mm -hmm. So, So. you know, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about the time inside prison. I mean, you know, I've had two friends here who are in who have spent time in prison. But I mean, your sentence was far beyond anything either of them so i mean jolia maybe but like you know my friend megs was two years but 27 years i mean when you when you went in did you know how long the sentence was going to be well when i went in i i was given life and so you know i knew life was life but at the same time 
prison always, you know, when you go to prison, you got good time that you get. And then they, you know, they cut time different ways, you know, like for instance, when I went in the average life sentence, a guy was getting out on parole after 13 years. Mm -hmm. So I figured, you know, I'll do 13, you know, and I'll get out. Well, this tough on crime thing hit about that time. So by the time my 13 come rolling around, 13 had done changed to 20. And then, you know, 20 changed again to life without. I mean, they just went on this runaway, lock them up, throw away the key thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just kept getting worse. So, I mean, let me ask you this. Uh, when you're sitting there knowing that, hey, you know what, the next 13 years of my life are are going to be spent in this situation. Uh, I, I remember telling a friend once, I said, you know, if I knew I was going to go to prison, I would just kill myself because I think I'm not, I, I was, I would be so terrified about the experience and, and what was going to come from it. And yet, you know, what has happened, you know, the people who I've spoken to, people like you, people like Joe Loya, people like my friend Meg Warden have dramatically altered my entire perception of our prison system. Uh, and, you know, to, to learn that there are these amazingly nice people in prison. Hell, I mean, Meg Warden is one of my great friends, somebody who I, I never thought would be one of the, the greatest influences in my life. And I, I guess, you know, for, for me, the question is, you know, when you look at that and say, you know, I've been given 13 years, what goes through your mind in a moment like that? Is it a moment of giving up? I mean, what, what go, what's going on in that moment? Well, most guys that, that commit crime, they're, they're risk takers anyway, you know? Uh-huh. I mean, let's face it, uh, there's an old saying, you know, uh, 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 too, you know, too lazy to work and too scared to steal, you know? And so a lot of people out there in the world today, they're like that. They're too lazy to work and too scared to steal. So they spend their lifetime bouncing around from, you know, some kind of program to a program looking for a handout or a couch to sleep on, or, you know, they're just bumming their way through life. Well, guys that, that, uh, are too lazy to work, but not scared to steal, they're risk takers. And so when they go to prison, you know, they've been playing games all their life. Prison is just another game. Now, of course, it can get violent up in there. You know, you can go up in there and you can get killed. You can get raped. You can get beat up. But usually that happens to people, unfortunately, that aren't equipped for prison. And those are actually your innocent people. Mm-hmm. You know, the people I feel sorry for are the ones that go to prison for for stuff that they should never go to prison for, you know, like druggies. Mm-hmm. You know, drug addicts and people that do drugs, they're not criminals, but they throw them in there with people that are, you know. And, and to me, that, that was so sad because now you got a guy that comes in, he's got a drug problem, and then by the time he gets out, He's got a, he's still got a drug problem because prison don't stop you from having a drug problem. You can get drugs in prison. So now when he gets out, he's got skills to where he can be even a bigger drug dealer, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it, it's just, it, it's insane. And as far as prison, and I don't know if I can make it in there, you know, there's no saying, you don't know what you can do until you got to do it. 
<laughs> you know, it, really, you don't. You don't know what you can do until you got to do it. And I have seen some of the guys that come in prison. You look at them, you think they'd never make it. And they take to prison like a duck to water. And I've seen other guys that come in and you think, oh, that guy, he ain't going to have no problem. And that's the guy that wraps a rope around his neck and jumps off the tier. Wow. You know, you, you just, you never know how that's going to play out. But prison has changed a lot. You know, when I went to prison, it was, it was 80% physical and 20% mental. And what I mean by that is, is when you go in, 80% of your troubles are going to be physical, which means that when you go in, if you lay down the groundwork, you're never going to have a problem. And what I mean by laying down the groundwork is you go in, you don't take no, you don't start no crap with nobody. You don't go in there like I'm Superman or something. You just go in there and you stand. You ain't got to stand tall, but you do got to stand. And if you do that, you know, you're going to be all right. It don't matter if you get your ass kicked. You just got to, you know, throw a punch. You can't just, you know, take it. You got to, you got to, you know, you got to stand up. And so you, you never have a problem after that. But if you go in and you're not able to physically, you know, muster up just 10% of courage to, to stand up, you're going to get abused and passed around like, a, uh, you know, like a little girl. So, sadly, that happens to some people. But most people, back in those days, you know, they, they got it. They would stand up, they'd fight a little bit, and they, and, and next thing you know, they'd be in there telling jokes in the chow hall and, you know, managing really well through prison life. And then it changed. And it became to where now prison shifted from being... 80% physical to 20% mental, it became 80% mental and 20% physical. Because when you go into a prison today, they have it so locked up tight that there's not going to be a lot of fighting. And they still have killings in prison, but they don't have nearly as many killings as they used to have. I mean, used to, you could kill an inmate and... Uh, They'd give you 10, 15 years, and they'd run it in with what you were already doing. So basically, you get to kill for free. You know, you could kill another guy, and it wouldn't cost you nothing mm -hmm. because uh, they just run it in with what you were doing. Nowadays, if you kill another prisoner, you know, you can wind up on death row, or they'll just, you know, give you a sentence that you're never getting out. You know, they'll give you life without parole. So guys are, you know, trying to get through prison life without killing somebody. <clears throat> but on the other end, uh, prison administrations these days, they, 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 like, uh, they like to toy with people's lives and their minds. You know, they get off on uh, uh, disrupting their days and, and, and uh, messing with their head. And, and telling them, oh, you'll get out. You know, I know you got 180 years, but we, we got a program coming out here in a little while that's going to, uh, you're going to fit into it and, and we're going to let you out then. And then 
five years go by. Well, we got another program, another five years goes by, and we got another program. And before you know it, you got guys that's been in there 15, 20, 30 years, and now they're old and they're sick. And and then, and now they're laughing at them and telling them, well, you know, looks like you're going to die here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they got their games that they play and it's, uh, it's ugly. Yeah. And, 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 and they get by with so many different things. Uh, you know, when you tell about an individual case, it, it just doesn't seem to, I don't know how you get people to understand how important it is, the small things that a person in prison could have. Like they'll say, okay, you can have paint supplies and you can have a TV and, and you can have all these things, but no one gives those to you. You have to make that money yourself and buy these things yourself. And it takes a long time to do this. The equivalent would be for you to buy a house and a car and start a family And then all of a sudden, I'll come in and say, you know what? I'm taking your house and your car. You're no longer allowed those things. And by the way, I'm going to break you and your family up. I'm going to send them here and send you there. And that's how prisons is these days. I mean, they'll come in and and all these things that you have saved years to buy, because it takes a long time to save enough money on prison wages to buy a TV and uh, art supplies and other things that you might want. And then they'll come in and they'll say, well, we've changed the rules and you can't have these things anymore. And then they'll take them away from you. And then a year or two later, they'll say, oh, you can have these things back. But they can't give you what they took because they done destroyed that. So now you got to save money again and go out and buy it. And then they turn around a year later and take it back again. Because, hmm. you know, these things can drive you nuts. So that's why I'm saying prison has turned into a really mental battlefield. You know, it's really, really hard on people. And one of the things that that I saw happening during my time there was how they were uh, criminalizing homelessness and mental illness. You got a lot of people that are homeless and mentally ill, and they just, you know, the courts get tired of dealing with them, and they just send them to prison. And then they wind up on these uh, 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 psych, uh, psychological uh, uh, programs and wind up on psych wards. And, and, and you know, they, they don't get help. They lay around in there eating their own feces and everything else. Wow. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So, you know, um, I want to ask you about one other uh, moment uh, during your time there, which I guess to me, this seems really like the arc of, of this story uh, or, or the sort of the, the peak of the story that, you know, we've been telling here is when you finally make the decision that that's it, I'm done. Uh, after so much time and a life in which you've committed to one of crime and violence, you make a decision that that's it. And I mean, that, that's a drastic change in a moment like that. And I'd love for you to sort of expand on making those kinds of changes in our own lives. And, and you know, what that, what, what is that like? I mean, to go from one extreme to another. It's like you go from a violent, you know, somebody who's violent to becoming a, just a complete pacifist. Well, it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> I'll put it that way. It doesn't happen overnight. And uh, it, it's just something that you, you, you decide that you're going to do. And then basically you spend the next 5, 10, 15 years fighting your nature. You know, because you're, it's like your nature for such a long time was to be violent. And now all of a sudden you've made this decision that you're not going to be violent anymore. You're going to be a pacifist. And so it's really hard and difficult. And I guess one of the stories that I can relate is that um, I had been, I had gotten to the point to where my pride was involved. I thought I, I'd gotten to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm such a wonderful pacifist. I won't even kill a cockroach. You know, I'll, I'll take a, 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 a trap rat and release it in the yard. You know, I won't even kill an animal. And I'm, I'm proud of this. And then one day in prison, there's this guy who has a mental 
mental health issue. He, he's a, a paranoid schizophrenic, and he I don't know why, but they always, God either tells them to do something or the CIA does. I don't know why. But if people have a mental illness, that seems to be something that, that that's always there. It's either the CIA or God makes them do crazy things. And so this particular fellow had this thing in his mind where he thought the CIA was out to kill him. And I don't know how it played out in his mind, but one of the things I always used to say is that it doesn't matter what we think because the craziest person in the world, whatever they do, makes perfect sense to them. Because if it didn't, they wouldn't do it. So I don't know why the guy decided to jump me, but it made perfect sense to him. And I was watching a TV program, and I got up to go use the bathroom. We had a common bathroom. And I go in the bathroom, and I'm, I'm urinating in a stall, and I see this bright white light. And all of a sudden, I, I'm, I'm like dizzy, and I turn around, and here's this guy. He's like six foot, I don't know, six foot five, six foot six. He's a big fellow, and and he's got a knife in one hand. It's actually a a, a, a a shank, but it's more like an ice pick type. And he's got a sock full of uh, batteries in the other hand. And he had just hit me in the back of the head while I was taking a, a piss with this sock full of batteries. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking at him. And in my mind, I'm wondering, what the fuck? And all of a sudden, he swings out again and hits me in the forehead, and I, and I and it liked to knock me it liked to knock me down. I was like, you know, I felt my knees buckle. And then he started moving toward me with the knife, and I went on automatic. And the next thing I know, I've, I've busted this guy's head. I've I've busted his nose, his mouth. I've got him on the ground. And I've got the knife away from him, and I'm getting ready to plunge this knife right straight through his heart. And I stop myself. And I break the knife off, and I drop it down the drain. And I look at him, and I say, brother, what is your fucking problem? And he looks up at me, and he says, what's going on? What's happening? What's going on? And I get up off of him and I help him get up and I'm cleaning the blood off of his head and his nose and his mouth and I'm helping him get cleaned up and all of a sudden he's okay his psychotic break is over and I have this huge concussion I wind up going to the hospital and they bring me back from the hospital because I have, again, I have a, a really bad concussion <clears throat> and I'm laying up there in the infirmary and I'm thinking about this guy and I'm thinking about how I hurt him and it, it it's hurting me. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm like really hurting and, uh, Dr. Whites comes up to visit me in the infirmary to see if I'm okay. And, and I tell him, I'm okay. I mean, how's this other guy? The guy's name was Larry. I said, how's Larry? 
He said, well, he, he's all right. He's got a few stitches in his head, but he's going to be okay. And I was, I mean, it really hurt me that I hurt him. And it took weeks, you know, talking to Dr. Weitz and a couple other guys. And they were saying, you know, it's okay to defend yourself. It's okay to defend yourself. And I said, you don't get it. You know, I, I broke my I broke my deal. I hurt that guy. And then Dr. Weiss kept asking me to play it out and tell what happened. And I told him, he says, stop right there. And I said, where? And he had me stop at the part where I was holding the knife and I was going to plunge it into his heart. He said, you didn't do that. You, you threw the knife away. You, you, you stopped when you had hurt him enough and you didn't go on. And I was like, that's right. He said, would the old you have done that? And he was right. You know, I, I mean, even though I had done a violent act, it was like in self-defense. And I sort of rationalized that around a little bit, you know. And I guess I kind of got to the point where I realized that Yes, I'm a pacifist up to a point. I will protect myself. And, of course, if somebody tried to hurt my wife or something like that, I'm not just going to stand there and let that happen. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, But it was a very sobering moment to realize that I wasn't a pure pacifist, that what I really was was just a guy that wasn't going to hurt anybody, but at the same time, I wasn't going to let anybody hurt me or my family. Mm -hmm. uh, really, just mind-blowing stuff. I mean, I, I love that you brought up that it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I think that that's one of those no, things. Not at all. I, I think that we, when we want to change, we really we we expect that. I think we're incredibly impatient uh, by our very nature. And my guess is when you have as much time as you did, patience was something that you had to cultivate. It, you know, you didn't have a choice. We, we would like to, uh, you know, have things to happen in an instance. I mean, we live in that kind of society. I mean, we don't even like a headache, you know, we got to have a pill for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we, we'd like, you know, uh, especially in America, you know, we, we like, uh, we like our pills. We like uh, instant relief from everything. Unfortunately, you know, in the real world, there's no automatic. What is automatic is the decision to do something different. Now, we can make that decision. We can make a decision that says, you know what? I'm going to move away from this direction and head this direction. Don't mean you're going to get there overnight. You know, it depends on how far the trip is. My trip was a long trip. I'd spent probably over 30 years being what I was. So I wasn't going to get to where I'm at today in five years. Mm -hmm. But from a year of making my decision, I was already seeing the results. It's like a, like a fat guy on a, a, a weight loss program. You might not lose 100 pounds in a year. But you see two pounds a week fall off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you could like see things that you're doing differently, you know, you, and you feel different. You know, that's that that's probably the the main thing. Even though you might still have um, 
a reaction like somebody being talking loud and your reaction early on might be to feel like getting up and smacking him down. Well, and as you begin to change, somebody talking loud, you're like, uh, you're looking at it in a different way. You're like, instead of wanting to smack him down, it's more like, how did he get there? You know, and having compassion for why did this person get, you know, what made this person get to where they're at? Because, and compassion is a good word because you have to have that same compassion for yourself. And it took me a while to get there. You know, I knew I wanted to be a different person. I didn't want to commit violence anymore. But also, I had to get to a place where I had compassion for me. I had to get in touch with, I guess, what you'd call my little kid and, and hug him when he when he needed to be hugged, you know, because I missed out on a lot of kid hugs. You know, I, I didn't get to have a, a childhood. I, I grew up quick. I mean, you know, at 12 years old, I was a man. I did a man's deed and I had to act like a man. So, you know, most kids today, their parents try to keep them kids even when they're in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was 14 and, and 13 and 15, I was I was hitchhiking all over the United States when I would escape from uh, reform school. I mean, I'm out on the dark streets, you know, at that age, hustling and and keeping alive and staying and and making moves, you know. So that that's a that's a long road to go down, and so when you make that change, it's a long road to go down. And, and, and then again, it doesn't happen overnight like like maybe we would want it to. But I would encourage anybody that wants to change the direction they're in, like if if it's drugs, if it's, it's uh, relationships, um, you know, whatever it is in their life that is a challenge, I would encourage people, you know, stay focused on the goal that you want and don't be upset with yourself if you don't get there right away. I mean, if you're a drug addict and you've been in rehab five times, Fuck it, dude. Go seven. Hmm. Go eight. Go until you get it done. You know, don't get, because if you quit, then you're done. You know, that's kind of like what uh, uh, the Reverend told me, you know, uh, uh, Father Kerwin. I mean, when he told me, if you can't, you can't, he's right. You know, if you get it in your mind, you can't do something, guess what? You can't do it. So I would say to people, you know, if you're stuck somewhere in your life, and you don't feel like that's where you want to be, you want to be somewhere else, then you got to start making that move in that direction. And if something happens and it stops you for a moment, don't let that something be a roadblock. Just let that something be an obstacle. And then you work your way around that obstacle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so much here in your story. I mean, we could easily, you know, like you like you said, you're like it would take a hundred episodes to cover everything. Uh, so, you know, let's shift gears a little bit. I, I want to talk about two things. One is coming out of prison um, and sort of this adjustment period, and and then I would love for you to talk about youth turns and the fact that you know when you told me that the way they count, you know, future prison beds is based on the children of existing prisoners. That's incredibly disturbing to think that that's how we're planning. So we're planning for the worst. 
which is which is horrible. Um, so, I, you know, I, I want to really help you voice this message out to our audience. Uh, but I also want to talk about the transition of coming out and kind of what that was like. Uh, and then I'm just going to give you the floor to, to talk to us about this issue and, and why it's so important and, you know, tell us what we can do to help. Well, for me, and, and you know, everybody's experience is a little bit different. Uh, some people, when they come out, they... Uh, They've got family to go to. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some people don't. And uh, so the, the experience is different. But from my experience, uh, I think one of the things that helped me uh, was that I was on work release. And being on work release, that allowed me to kind of ease my way back in before I was actually released. I would leave the prison at seven o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't have to report back till seven in the evening, <laughs> excuse me. And so uh, the job I had, I was a plumber. And so uh, doing that, uh, it kind of helped me get over some hurdles. Like uh, I remember one time uh, uh, going to a gas station and uh, sitting there waiting on an attendant to come out. You know, I, I didn't realize it, you know, it was now all you know, self-service. Everybody had to pump their own fuel. I was waiting for a guy to come out, do my windows and pump gas and, you know, give him some money. <laughs> but uh, I, I realized real quick, that, you know, those days were gone. And uh, another weird thing that happened to me was uh, I would stand in front of the doors, you know, and, and wait on somebody to come and open them for me because I hadn't had the experience in a long time of opening my own door. So, uh, I got over that quickly, though. I mean, that's, you know, I never waited for an attendant more than that one time. You know, I got it. You know, once I saw what it was, I understood it. And uh, same thing with the door after standing there, you know, and, and, and it was embarrassing, I guess, you know. And, and, well, I don't guess. I know it was. It was embarrassing to <clears throat> kind of be behind the eight ball on, on all that stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. But these are the small things. You know, I prepared myself pretty good for the, for the bigger things. You know, I put a you know, put back a little bit of money, uh, um, made all the uh, right moves that I could make, and uh, also had family. You know, my father was still out. Uh, I had my wife, uh, uh, so we, we had a home to go to. So I, I didn't, like, like a lot of guys, I didn't get just dumped on the street. And I can tell you horror stories about people that get out of prison and they got nobody and nowhere to go. And they essentially get dumped on the street. I got a guy now that uh, he's my uh, 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 house sitter while Linda and I, I travel. He, he takes care of our property in our house. And when he got out, he got out on a, a, a halfway house program and they let him out on a Friday. And it was a holiday weekend. The halfway house people didn't even come and pick him up. He was stuck there at a bus station. I had to make arrangements uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning to get somebody to go down there and pick him up. And it took four or five days to get him straightened up and uh, was able to talk to some people at the parole uh, headquarters down there in Tennessee. And, and they were helpful. You know, I, I'd like to say that. You know, the, some of these government systems try to be helpful if you know who to talk to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so uh, for some people, it's difficult. <clears throat> and uh, we really, really need reentry programs. I mean, that is just going to have to happen at some point. I mean, good ones. 
not these fly by the night con jobs that are out there, but they need some real good uh, reentry programs. And so my transition was pretty smooth. Um, the day that I got out of prison, it was January, and there was a surreal moment when I walked out the gate and I asked myself, do I want to look back? And I thought, sure, I do. Why not? You know, that was home for me for 27 years, you know. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, uh, turned around. I did look back and um, I just said bye, you know, and uh, uh, picked my wife up and swung her around and around. And we just, you know, hugged real tight and cried a little bit and got in the car and away we drove. And uh, uh, she she wanted to uh, uh, take me to an Indian restaurant. You know, it was one of her favorites. And so we went there and. Um, I'd never eaten Indian food before, and I guess for some people, curry is an acquired taste, and so, but I did enjoy the salads, those are good, and uh, after that, we went over uh, across the street from there, there was a Catholic church, I wanted to go in and light a candle, and uh, I did, I lit a candle and, and gave thanks for my freedom, uh, we went home. We had a great meal at home later that night, and uh, and you know we got busy with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been a while, <laughs> so, you know. We just uh, had a great time, and uh, uh, and then the next day, and I started uh, uh, going back to my job. You know, I, I was still working where I was working when I'd gotten out, and. Um, after being there for a while, I got to noticing, you know, uh, they're always going to treat me like an ex-convict around there. You know, the company that I was at, they uh, they wanted me to work 14-hour shifts, but they weren't willing to pay me what they were paying the other guys. So I started looking around for something better to do, and that's when I uh, took a van that my father had given me and... Um, uh, I started hauling uh, uh, auto parts around town. I knew some people that uh, got me involved in that and uh, made pretty good money at it. And then uh, uh, met a guy that uh, wanted me to haul uh, parts for uh, Chevy and, and uh, folks on backward and back and forth from uh, the Tennessee area down to Minth- uh, Mississippi. So I did that for a while. And then I realized, you know, I, I need to get a truck, you know, and, and I could probably do better. So I got a truck, and then later on I got a couple more trucks and uh, just started my own business. And I realized, you know, pretty quickly that working for somebody else with that label of uh, ex-con, you know, they're not going to treat you all that well. At least my, that was my experience. You're going to have to, you know, they're going to pay you less than anybody else they're not going to give you a fair wage and uh but they're going to expect you to work like a dog and i'm like well you know i can work like a dog for myself Mm -hmm. and i encourage everybody that's getting out of prison you know to try to find something that they enjoy doing and uh you know go out and make that their job Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh linda and i you know we try to help people when we can uh uh, without naming names, we've helped quite a few people, and uh, some of them have gone on to be successful. Some of them, you know, uh, 
not so good, you know. Uh, we've had people that, uh, you know, took advantage and stole from us. But, you know, I got an old saying that I, that, that well, it's not an old saying. It's kind of a new saying that I, that I started when I got into my own uh, uh, self-healing. And that was that, you know, I got to be willing to take a risk on people because, people took a risk on me and you know if you aren't willing to put your hand out there to get it smacked then you're living a life that's way too safe and if you're living a life that's way too safe then you ain't living Mm -hmm. so you know and that that's the that's the truth of that Mm. so let me ask you this uh you know that this part about coming out it uh, takes me back to a scene from the movie Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, uh, Shawshank, Shawshank. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that. Uh, Morgan Freeman on the beach. He meets his buddy yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, the the thing that uh, really struck, struck me as you're talking about, you know, the time that you've spent and, and coming out uh, was there was this scene where he says, you know, I don't know if I could make it on the outside. I've become institutionalized. And, you know, you clearly sort of overcame that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really, you said that, you know, you were prepared for the mental battle more more than the average person uh, when coming out. Because, uh, and I'm really curious to, to hear your thoughts on that whole idea. I mean, do people become institutionalized? And, and does that just cause them to go back? What happens, it, you know, I don't, the, the word institutionalized is is a word. Uh, it's, it's it's just a word because when you get right down to it, uh, what people call institutionalized is letting themselves off the hook for not having good reentry programs. That's the real truth. I mean, if these guys coming out had something, uh, if there were real rehabilitation and if there were real reentry programs, then most of these guys that, that are being called institutionalized would be just fine working jobs and staying out of prison. What happens is a guy gets out of prison full of hopes and dreams and ambitions, and he realizes that once he gets out, there's not much he can do. Because when he gets out of prison, he's got $25 in his pocket, and that is gone within probably 10 or 15 minutes of hitting the streets. And now he's got nothing. He's got a mission home that he's staying at or he's sleeping off in an alley somewhere. He got nothing. He And, he, and, and there's nobody in a lot of these guys' cases that will help them because in their formal life as a druggie or a thief, they, they they burned a lot of bridges, so no one's willing to give them, give them a hand. So all those dreams and aspirations that they had hit the cold uh, wall of reality, and they realize they're on their own. They got no help. No one's uh, knocking down their door to give them a job. They're paralyzed. They don't, they don't know what to do or how to act in society. And... Uh, most of these guys coming out are uh, their emotional IQ is somewhere down around uh, uh, mental retardation. I mean, they 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 just don't know how to socially. They they don't they don't know how to do it. Now, prison is full of people, and you can check this out. Anybody can. It's full of people that have these tremendously high IQs, but they're 
emotional IQ is like, you know, retarded. They're, they're off the chart retarded because they, they just don't know how to handle their emotions and uh, 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 societal uh, interactions. They just don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. They, they've never been taught. They've never had anyone to work them through it. And so when these guys get out, again, they, they're, they're just uh, paralyzed. They, they don't know what to do. So what do they do? They do what they know, which is what? Go back to drugs, go back to stealing. And then, then the next thing, they're not the smartest guys in the world. That's how come they get caught and they go to prison, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just a cycle. It's a vicious cycle that will continue until somebody says, hey, you know what? We got to do a better job. We got to have real reentry programs. We can't have this, you know, uh, conmanship going on. We got to really work with these guys and and try to help them stay out. And uh, and and like I said, I've worked with guys. My wife and I have, and the ones that we've worked with, they're doing good. You know, they're doing pretty good. We've had one or two that went back, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you why they went back is because they were in a big hurry to regain everything that they thought they had lost. And that set them up for failure Hmm. because you can't gain 20 years in a year. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and so you try to tell these guys, you can't do do that. So institutionalized, I, I don't, I don't believe in it, but what I do believe is that guys get so broke down that the only alternative form is to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. That's all they got. They don't have nothing else. And so people have come up with the word institutionalized, concrete mama, you know, all this stuff. Like somebody really wants to be in prison. Nobody wants to be in prison. I've never known anybody that if the gates fell down would just sit there. <laughs> so l- let me ask you this. I mean, you've, you've brought up breaking the cycle, which I think is actually a perfect transition to sort of wrap things up and really get to, to the end of our conversation. But um, one more question around the process of coming out. You know, what I see in you as you describe the process of, you know, recognizing that somebody was going to work you like a dog is that you saw opportunity uh, and you saw opportunity to, to rebuild yourself. And you are clearly somebody who broke the cycle. And, you know, I'm curious what you think it is that distinguishes uh the person who breaks the cycle, I mean, what is it about their mindset that enables them to break the cycle from the ones who don't? When uh, preparation meets opportunity, I mean, when you prepare your mind to do things and then the opportunity arises and you're already prepared, you just step right into it. And so uh, I, I was already thinking and, and looking and and trying to figure out things that I would do when I got out. I had several different plans from simple to complicated. You know, my most simple plan was uh, if I, you know, before I got married and, and, and met my wife, I had a plan of getting out. I was going to wash dishes and uh, ride a bicycle, basically sleep in a sleeping bag and find a warm climate and save all my money for like five or six years and have enough money to uh, start my own business. Because I figured it up. I did the math on it, and I figured it up. And I said, you know, in five years, I could have about $100,000 if I save every nickel. 
Mm-hmm. You know, don't spend no money on rent or gasoline. Ride a bicycle, sleep in the park, uh, take baths, you know, wherever I can grab them. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I had a plan. And, and so people, if they put a plan together and they stick with the plan, they can work their way out of almost anything. Wow. And that ain't just guys coming out of prison. That's anybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why I asked that question because I knew there was something really powerful there, and I mean I I think that it's really interesting how resourceful we become when our backs are against the wall. I, I think most people think that they wouldn't have the capacity to generate ideas the way you did, but I think often it's only being put in those situations that causes us to start you know getting creative uh, about solving our problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, what's that old saying? Uh, necessity, the mother of invention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, that's true. That's true. You know, when, when you get in a situation, uh, you're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of being human. We, we figure these things out, you know, mm-hmm. and and, and I, I always tell everybody, don't, you know, don't uh, cut yourself short. You don't know what you can do until you got to do it. Yeah. So, you know, I want to wrap things up here um, by having you talk a little brief, briefly about youth turns. I mean, you know, you talk about breaking the cycle. And I, I was just telling a friend about the first half of the conversation about what you said in terms of how prisons plan for the future. The fact that they use the children of inmates to do their statistical modeling, that was probably one of the most disturbing parts of our entire conversation to me. Uh, and I felt that, you know, wow. The fact that we're not doing anything about this other than planning for the worst, uh, that, that's horrible. So I, I'd love for you, I mean, consider well, this a moment to plug, you know, what it is you do and, and what you're hoping to accomplish uh, a, a, in terms of trying to change this problem, because that really is a horrible thing to hear. Well, uh, a lot of different states use different uh, methods to try to figure out, you know, the, the need for prison beds. And they have these different models that they use. But, uh, but I've heard it said time and time again from different professionals, and I know they're, they're, they're being straight about it. Uh, the biggest indicator that they have is they know that anywhere between 50 and 70 percent, depending on the region of the country, and and uh, the area, basically, uh, they know that these young kids that have parents in prison are going to grow up and go to prison themselves. I mean, it's a given. They know it. And so that's one of the things that they use when they start figuring out, you know, how many beds we're going to use in the future. I mean, you go to any prisoner that's been locked up for a while and you, and you ask him one simple question. Uh, have you participated lately in a survey that was done in prison asking uh, prisoners how many children they had? And when they said how many children, they're talking about not just, you know, children that you have a wife or a grandmother or somebody out there taking care of. They also want to know how many children you got that you don't even claim, but you know are yours. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they know these kids are in trouble, too. And uh, it, it's just it, it's terrible. And. And it breaks your heart because when I was in prison, I would see these kids, like I said, you know, seven, eight years old on the picnic area, running around playing. And next thing you know, uh, 10 years later, they're 18, 19 years old and they're in there with a number on their back for robbing a drugstore or or stealing a car or whatever. You know, they were there Mm -hmm. and it just would break your heart. And uh, 
uh, they, they would go the regular route. They would go to form school, and then after reform school, they'd graduate and go to penitentiary. I mean, it's almost like middle school and college wow. and high school and college. You know, high, high school is reform school. College is uh, your local uh, state pen. Not Penn State, but state pen. Wow. So, you know, that, that's, that's the route. And, uh, there, I mean, th- th- this is no secret. There are a lot of pe- people that, that have programs that they're running and, and they're trying to address this issue and, uh, one way or the other, but, but see, you can't just do this by helping the kids. You have to help the family unit. You know, that whole family unit has to be helped and, uh, it can be done and it's worth doing. And the money that would be saved is phenomenal. I mean, uh, taxpayer money, we're, we're spending enough money on the average guy that goes to prison. We, we could send this guy to Harvard for the money that we spend on the average guy in prison. Now, we could spend just half of that to keep him out of there. Look at all the money that taxpayers would save. To me, it's a fiscal issue because there's tons of money that could be saved if we would just do the right thing and the smart thing and give up this uh, 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 hop along Cassidy yippee ki cowboy shit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, lock them up, throw away the key, rope them and hang them and all that crap. We have to start looking, in my opinion, at criminal activity as a mental health issue. And we have to start looking at mental health issues and stop trying to criminalize everything. You know, at one time in this country, there were only three federal offenses, and now they got enough books to fill a frickin' library of federal offenses. I mean, this is lock-up crazy nation that we're living in. And And the good news is there's a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle. There's a lot of uh, uh, citizens out there now uh, th- that are aware of this because we've reached what I call the saturation point where now everybody seems to know somebody to spend the prison. You know, there was a time when nobody knew anybody or they might have heard of somebody that knew somebody, but now almost everybody knows somebody that's been in prison. And it's just getting harder and harder not to, you know, come in the crosshairs of the law. Uh, this drug policy that we have in our country, it's insane. You know, it's just plain insane. And they know it, and it needs to change. We don't even need to have a drug policy. We don't need to have it. We just need to to let people do what they do. And then the money that we would save from from this war on our citizens, we could use for uh, rehab centers and uh, uh, things that would actually help them instead of throwing them in prison. I never saw anybody get help for a drug problem getting thrown in prison that's not help mm-hmm. you know that that's perpetuating the problem so anyway don't get me started <laughs> well andy uh you know i i really appreciate you coming uh to to join us and and share you know your insights uh with our listeners because it's interesting to hear you say that now everybody, you know, you come across probably knows somebody that has gone to prison. And I can tell you in my lifetime, I never thought that I would ever chat with somebody who, who's gone to prison. But, I, you know, I felt that when Brett told me everything about your story, I felt we had a very moral obligation uh, to give you a microphone to talk about this. And uh, so I'm going to close things up with one final question. And this is actually, you know, sort of a, a 
a departure from everything that we've been talking about, but it's more a question about creativity and, and uh, how we stand out in the world today. Our show is called The Unmistakable Creative, and uh, I'm really uh, curious, based on, on sort of the experiences of your life uh, and the things that you've seen and, and you know, seeing the internet after uh, 27 years in prison, what is it that makes something or somebody in your mind unmistakable? Makes them unmistakable, unmistakably creative, maybe? I guess that's is that what you're asking. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, basically, what is it that makes them so distinctive that you know it's them? That they listen, that they have listened. You know, uh, to, be, uh, a, a, to be creative, you have to listen because creativity comes from the universe out and in. And if you're not listening, then you're not getting it. You're not feeling it. You're not you're not projecting it through your poetry or through your painting or or through these uh, 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 wonderful music or whatever creative function that you have within you. And I think creativity, uh, whatever the format, is an expression of uh, of God or of uh, the universe, because we're all born to be creative. I mean, that, that's what we do from the time that we're little babies. We just giggle and laugh when we're able to predict something. And predicting something is like the, the forerunner of a creative process. And so uh, we're born to create. And uh, it's funny you should mention that because a friend of mine, I don't know how familiar you are with country music, uh, Mark Colley, he came into Brushy Mountain and did this wonderful documentary about uh, – how music uh, uh, brings out a creative spirit in people and it actually helps them to express deep down emotional issues, which is therapeutic to them and helps them to rehabilitate themselves through their music. And uh, the, the documentary was called uh, uh, The Mountain, and I think it's coming out soon. But anyway, it, it was a great, great thing. And so that, that was all about what you're talking about, creativity. And um, I, I believe we all have it. We just have to listen and open up to it. Awesome. Well, Andy, uh, like I said, it has been my absolute pleasure to have you here uh, as a guest on The Unmistakable Creative. I mean, this, is, this has been one of the most uh, riveting and, uh, you know, mind-blowing conversations I've had the good fortune to have in the time that I've done this. And uh, I really, really appreciate you coming and sharing your story and your insights uh, and your mission uh, with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. All right. Well, you can tell everybody that they can tweet me or Facebook me or whatever. I'd be glad to hear from your audience. Awesome. And I'm sure you will be. All right. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.